0: Hey, what's up y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan and this is how we do it and right now you're listening to legal face-off on WGN radio That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers rich Lenkoff and tina martini And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues sports entertainment politics Nothing is off limits Keep listening, because this is how we do it. Hello, and thank you for joining us
1: on the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio with Tina Martini of the McDermott, Will & Emory Law Firm, and Rich Lenkoff with Downey & Lenkoff. I'm your host, Ron Brown. Recently, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as she's called in the press, made some headlines by accusing Israel of committing war crimes in its war with Hamas in Gaza. Our first guest, Professor Jeffrey Korn, will address that. He is a retired Army lieutenant colonel serving 21 years in the Army. Now he's a professor at Texas Tech University School of Law. Before that, he was the Army's senior law of war expert.
2: Professor, welcome. So as Ron mentioned, AOC said that in blockading water, food, and electricity to some 2.2 million Palestinians, uh, that Israel was committing war crimes, in her words. Define for us, if you can, for our listeners, what are war crimes and whether you feel that she is correct. Well, a war crime is a violation of certain provisions of what's called the
3: law of armed conflict, sometimes called international humanitarian law, which is a robust body of rules that regulate both the conduct of hostilities and the treatment of victims of war. And the the violations that are widely accepted as war crimes are incorporated into the statute of what's called the International Criminal Court. Um, and now, in response to her comments, first, I want to emphasize, I completely understand her sympathy for the suffering of civilians in Gaza, and I share that sympathy. But I have to say that I think that the accusation of war crimes is both overbroad and legally, Uh, premature, to be honest with you. And I can explain that in more detail if you want to get into that. Yes, please do so. So the first issue was the decision of Israel to cut off resources to southern Gaza. Uh, Military people would call those siege tactics. And the law of armed conflict does not prohibit siege tactics, and it doesn't require one side to provide provisions to the other. What it requires is that you make an effort to facilitate uh, independent humanitarian actors from providing humanitarian relief to the civilian population. But was was more, what was more troubling about the accusation was that she called it collective punishment. Now, collective punishment is a war crime. I mean, You think about the old World War II movies when there was a French resistance fighter who killed a German soldier and the German commander would round up 50 French civilians and execute them. That's collective punishment. The problem with her accusation is she's conflating collective consequence with collective punishment. Collective punishment requires that the intent of the Israelis was to punish the civilian population when in fact the intent was to deprive their enemy of important resources most notably electricity. I was skeptical about the the legitimacy of cutting off water which is a complicated legal issue but just from a common sense standpoint I don't think it Produce much of a military advantage and Israel quickly reversed that decision. But electricity, when you're fighting an enemy that operates underground and relies on electricity for communications, light, uh, transportation and firing rockets, of course, any enemy is going to be, uh, damaged by cutting that off. So cutting a lot off electricity clearly to me was intended to affect the enemy, not the civilian population.
4: So, Professor, looking at the initial attack by Hamas on Israeli citizens, could the Israeli response, putting aside the blockading of the water, food and electricity, could the Israeli response be defined as war crimes?
3: No, I don't think so. So under international law, a state has a right to act in self-defense when it's the victim of an unlawful armed attack. Just like you learned in law school, an individual has a right to defend themselves Using proportional force. What gets debated is whether or not the Israeli action was proportional, and people fall into the trap of assuming that proportionality is kind of a tit for tat equation. You fire one rocket, I'm allowed to fire another rocket. But if we just think of a state as an individual who's the victim of an ongoing unlawful um, act of violence, you're allowed to do whatever is necessary to restore your state's security. So it's not tit for tat self defense. What Hamas demonstrated to Israel was that its assumptions from prior conflicts that it could manage the threat without a full scale military operation to destroy Hamas's military capability was no longer valid. Israel, if anything, has been restrained in prior conflicts, like in 2014 and 2020. But Hamas blew that expectation out of the water. How do you tell? 300,000 Israelis who've evacuated the southern part of the country, that it's safe to go back unless you completely eliminate this enemy threat. And that's what self defense justifies. Uh, So when people talk about proportionality, we have to understand that what it really means is that the state is permitted to do what's necessary to defeat the ongoing threat, but not turn it into uh, what's widely referred to as retaliation. And I think that that's. That rhetoric is very political, but as a matter of law, Israel is not acting
2: in retaliation, it's acting in self-defense. Professor, for years, Palestine or Palestinians have accused Israel, the Israeli government of committing ongoing war crimes in their alleged uh, unlawful occupation of their territory. And they've attempted to have the International Criminal Court in the Hague prosecute Israel for such war crimes. Putting that part aside, let's assume hypothetically that there were crimes involved here by Israel. In fact, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, other organizations have affirmatively accused Israel of of those transgressions. If that was the case, who would prosecute these crimes? How does that work?
3: Well, listen, the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court is an independent prosecutor and has accepted Palestine as a member of the court, which means any offenses that occur on what they consider Palestinian territory or within the court's jurisdiction. The court could issue an indictment against Israeli political or military leaders, and they would have no ability to um, enforce the indictment by because Israel is not a party to the treaty. But every member state that is a party to the treaty would have an obligation to support the court, which means these individuals would be living with the sword of Damocles dangling over their head. If they travel outside of Israel, particularly to Europe, now, the United States is not a party to the court, but you could be a a former political leader or a military leader and you go on a holiday in um, Switzerland or Germany and you get off the plane and the authorities would have an obligation to arrest you and turn you over to the International Criminal Court in the Hague. Let me just make one point, though, that I think is important. I think one of the most dangerous aspects of the commentary on this conflict is conflating issues. There are separate issues. The issue of the West Bank is a separate issue from what Gaza did. Hamas does not represent the the vast majority of Palestinian people. They certainly don't represent the Palestinians in Gaza, I mean, in in the West Bank. And Israel does bear an obligation to figure out some solution going forward to the, the situation in the West Bank. There's been a lot of violence in the West Bank that's been going unreported. Israel has an obligation to maintain law and order and to bring to justice anybody who engages in in criminal violence in the West Bank. That's not what this issue is about. This issue is about conflict and one side of the conflict that has absolutely no respect for the rules of war and another side that's trying to follow them. So the most fundamental question your listeners should ask is pretty simple. Which side is trying to get civilians killed and which side is trying to avoid it? You don't add up civilian casualties to determine whether there's a war crime because the law focuses on what you're trying to do, not what you actually did. So when when the representative from New York acknowledged that what Hamas did on October 7th amounted to war crimes, obviously they did. What she didn't acknowledge was every one of the 8,000 rockets that's been launched at Israel since then is also a war crime because Hamas is trying to kill civilians. The fact that they don't do it doesn't mean it's not a war crime. Israel is trying to kill Hamas military operatives. And because of Hamas tactics, cannot avoid the tragic consequence of causing civilian casualties as an incidental consequence. And that's the focus of the law. Are you trying to kill civilians or put them in a worse situation, or are you trying to avoid that consequence?
2: Professor, last question here on Legal face Faceoff. So turning it back to the representative from New York, and earlier you mentioned that that was a political question. It's hard to consider whether there is a violation of international law uh, on either side without considering the politics of it, the optics of it, the press coverage of it, the, the public relations aspect of it, because it seems to me that, you know, from one of the most shocking attacks of political terror in history, within days turned into a whole different narrative. Right? We saw, we continue to see protests. We continue to see media uh, outcry over the uh, alleged, dist- you know mistreatment of uh, Palestinians yeah uh, we continue to see you know mixed signals from my opinion from from the white house and which they initially said that you know muslims are being disproportionately uh, uh attacked and vilified to me that's all uh, a shocking reaction so how can you consider the war crimes question without taking into account this public relations campaign that frankly unfortunately in my opinion hamas seems to be winning yeah well first off the first
3: step would be what you would expect of anybody talking about a legal issue. Make sure you know the law you're talking about before you start to unsheathe the sword of of criminal accusation. Too many people who are accusing Israel of war crimes do not understand the way the law functions in combat and the structure of the law and the obligations on a, on the military like the IDF secondly, recognize that um States don't commit war crimes. Individuals do. When you say Israel is committing war crimes, you're accusing individuals who come up in a moral society, who are trained to follow the rules of war, of committing criminal violations. And before you do that, you should be a little bit reticent. I'm fine by saying the amount of destruction that we're observing uh, suggests that we should be thinking or questioning The legitimacy of the military operations. That's fine. But let the experts, let the experts talk about the law and define what is a war crime. The other thing I would emphasize is people need to understand that for Hamas, combat is not designed to defeat the Israelis in battle. Combat is a supporting effort to their misinformation campaign. They want Israel to have to produce civilian casualties. One of their leaders was quoted in the press today saying it's not their job to protect Gazan civilians. It's Israel's job to protect Gazan civilians. Their goal, they they win no matter what. If they put their assets near uh, civilian populations, if they tell the civilians not to evacuate, that's a violation of the law in and of itself. But they don't care because one of two things is going to happen. Either Israel is not going to attack in which case their asset is protected, or Israel is going to be compelled to attack, it's going to produce civilian casualties, and they're going to use that as information fodder in their delegitimization campaign. They need to get Israel to stop fighting. That's how they win, that they're still standing. They do that by getting the international community to consistently condemn Israel. So this is right out of their playbook. It happens every time there's a flare-up of hostilities against Israel. And we have to be very careful about making the mistake of assuming that the side that dropped the bomb is the side that bears legal responsibility for the civilian suffering. With an enemy like Hamas, it's normally... The defending force that bears that responsibility, because they're deliberately exposing civilians to the to the consequences of combat operations. All right, and thank you to our guest, Professor Jeffrey Korn. He's a professor at uh, Texas
1: Tech University School of Law. Before that, he was the Army's senior law of war expert. Thank you
5: for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence extraordinary client service and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: Our next guest is attorney Ted Thomas, a personal injury attorney who's representing the victims in the shootings at the Old National Bank in downtown
4: Louisville. Yeah, welcome to the show, um, as Ron profiled, none of us can forget the horrific tragedy last April when Connor Sturgeon, an employee of Old National Bank in Louisville, brought an AR-15 rifle to work and shot and killed five and wounded eight before he was shot and killed by a police officer. A group of survivors and victims' families are planning to file a lawsuit against Radical Firearms, which is the Texas company that produced the rifle used during the attack. Please tell us more about this potential lawsuit.
6: Sure. Thanks, Christina. And and as you said, it's a potential lawsuit. It's not yet been filed, uh, but we are in the works. Uh, This is going to be a case uh, against Radical Firearms, which is a Texas company that made the AR-15 in this particular case. Uh, And we're proceeding kind of under the same legal theory that some of the other uh, mass shootings have pursued. My co-counsel in the case, Antonio Romanucci from Chicago, is one of the preeminent lawyers in this field. I know he's been a guest of your all's previously. And so we're moving forward. Uh, We're doing our investigation and the complaint is being drafted as we speak.
2: Uh, The uh, weapon here in question is AR-15. The instruction manual includes a disclaimer for any responsibility resulting from any intentional or accidental discharge of the firearm, what effect do you think that disclaimer has on your potential lawsuit?
6: Uh, under Kentucky
2: law, it, we
6: don't believe it'll have any effect whatsoever. And I'm not here to say that these aren't difficult cases from a legal perspective. They certainly are uh, with PLACA, the federal statute that creates immunity uh, for these manufacturers. However, that particular uh, disclaimer in the owner's manual. We don't believe will have any legal effect. I can't imagine that any of my clients have ever seen the owner's manual of a Radical Arms uh, AR-15, much less they would be bound uh, by anything that you know they put in their own uh, manuals.
4: So, Tad, obviously, our, there's some horrific shootings that preceded this one, including Sandy Hook. Um, there was a significant settlement. Um, In that um, matter, involving Remington, who was the gun manufacturer in that case, to what extent do you think that settlement and that case will inform how this case, should it be filed, um, progresses?
6: So the, that case obviously was the first of its kind. And the Costco firm from Connecticut did an incredible job carving out this exception to PLACA and moving forward on what really nobody had tried to do previously. And now what you see is in these mass shootings all across the country, it has created a path uh, so that victims can possibly get some sort of justice. So we're certainly looking at that case as a model, at least from the legal standpoint. uh, And under Kentucky law, we believe that the Kentucky Consumer Protection Act is very similar to the Connecticut Consumer Protection Act. And to the the fact that it was used as the exception to plaque in that case, we think that it, it's identical here and it will be an avenue for us to pursue justice.
2: Uh, Ted, what about uh, red flag laws? Is that going to play into your uh, legal strategy at all?
6: So Kentucky does not have red flag laws. Uh, we wish they did. Uh, maybe in this particular instance, if we had the the family might've actually done something you may know from the facts that, Uh, This young man had a year of serious uh, mental illness and had largely started doing better. And in the week prior really started going downhill and his own family reached out to medical providers. Uh, They had him an appointment just days before this shooting. Uh, Unfortunately, unbeknownst to the family, uh, he had gone out and purchased this radical arms AR-15. But, you know, Maybe if we had a red flag law in Kentucky, maybe this would have been prevented and there would have been a resource there for the family or the mental health providers to figure out a way to keep him from obtaining a weapon.
4: What extent, so to your point, Tad, to what extent, apparently the employer was also aware um, that he was struggling. And it sounds like it was a very unfortunate set of circumstances where the employer was on notice. Um, his his co-workers were on notice. He was grappling with a number of issues, including anxiety. To what extent does the workplace manifestation of troubles factor into cases like this? So, first
6: of all, under Kentucky law, our work comp statutes are very strict as to what you can and can't pursue against an employer. And in this case, I think that it would would be a large legal hurdle uh, for us to pursue a claim against uh, the, the bank. We have looked at that, and we have looked at different uh, legal theories as to that. Uh, based on our investigation, yes, they were aware that he had some uh, mental health issues going on, but so far we have not heard any evidence that they were aware that he was prone to violence. Uh, and nobody, you know, even our clients who knew Connor didn't know him as being a violent person. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's going to be new information as the case proceeds. Uh, but as we, as we're currently sitting here with the information we have, we don't see an avenue against old national bank and we're not pursuing that at this time.
2: And last question on our legal face-off, um, on this very important topic here in, uh, in Illinois, not too far from where Tina is right now, uh, the father of the Highland Park shooter uh, is facing trial for uh, reckless conduct charges for allegedly helping his son get uh, a firearm card, a Foyd card, as it's known here. Um News this week is that his son won't testify against him, but I know that you're pursuing civil remedies, but to what extent do you think uh, some of these parties, including family members, should be held criminally liable when there's evidence that they not only were aware of some predilections towards violence, but actually, in this case, allegedly facilitated the uh, acquisition of the weapon used to kill all these people? Uh first of all
6: the old National Bank shooting is is different obviously from that one that we don't have any evidence the family do A, that he was prone to violence, or B, that he had access to a weapon, and and they are actually supportive of our case against radical firearms. Certainly, though, in those instances where you have anyone who facilitates, whether it's a friend or a family member, uh, anyone who's participating in allowing access to a weapon of mass destruction, uh, to someone who is at a low point mentally... Uh, That is subject to a civil cause of action, and I think that we as attorneys need to pursue those cases, and hopefully that will serve as a deterrent in the future and and maybe prevent one of these from happening.
1: All right. Thank you to uh, Attorney Ted Thomas, an attorney representing the uh, family of the victims of the old national bank shooting in downtown Louisville. Thanks, Ron. Our next guests are attorneys Janelle Mataj and Larry Desparty of the Desparty Law Group. They recently went to Springfield to fight for the rights of victims of uninsured drivers and hit and run drivers.
2: Guys, welcome. Yeah, as Ron mentioned, uh, back in September of 2020, your client, uh, Christopher Garocha, I'm probably misspelling or missing the name, was hit by a motorist while riding his bicycle. You argued that his insurer's denial of his claim was. Uh, Wrong, and you argued this case before the Supreme Court recently in September. Explain to us a little more about this case and what made you take this all the way to Springfield. This was an
7: interesting case. And first of all, a lot of people don't know that the insurance they have. Uh, covered them when they're hit by pin-run or uninsured drivers. And this was a 14-year-old kid who was riding his bike in the streets, got struck by a pin-run driver, had some pretty bad injuries, and had nowhere to turn but his father's insurance. It was their initial denial uh, stating that he must be in the insured vehicle in order to get benefits that, that really sparked this whole thing, taking it to the circuit court. We lost at the circuit court, took it to the appellate court because... As uh, the circuit court judge stated, and I quote this one, uh, if you want to make a public policy argument, go make it at the appellate court. And that's exactly what we did here. And we won at the appellate court. And once the insurance company uh, appealed it to the Supreme Court, uh, the appeal was granted and we were going to take it all the way and fight all the way.
2: Why Why was coverage denied? And what was the issue exactly that you were litigating?
7: Sure. So uh, there's a specific provision in the insurance uh, contract that Christopher Uriculture's father had. And it said in order to get uninsured motorist benefits, you must be an occupant in the insured vehicle, meaning the vehicle that declared in the policy. Uh, This is language that's already been struck down by the second district court in a case called Merckx, where they said you cannot condition coverage on being in the insured vehicle. Here, direct out of Twitter argument, even though the language was the same, they said, oh, no, we meant to cover people in vehicles. Uh, you just cannot be a pedestrian or a bicyclist. And that was their main uh, argument for denying coverage.
4: How prevalent are these types of denials of coverage? And what is someone who's in Christopher's position supposed to do if they end up getting struck by a car, and it seems like this is happening more and more frequently, especially given the prevalence of, um, you know, various streets in Chicago and elsewhere, giving um, you know pedestrians as well as bike riders um, more access to the
7: road. Sure, and, and we do see a lot of this in, in our city, especially with uh, vehicles being stolen and involved in accidents, uh, pedestrian, bicyclists. The, the thing that we've noticed from the, our practice here, we personal injury lawyers, uh, the majority of insurance companies, you know, standard insurance companies, they will cover these accidents. They do not fight it, they do not have any uh, language in their policies, such as the direct auto policy here. And I've only seen it twice um, from two different substandard insurance carriers who are trying to deny coverage. Uh, based on occupying the insured vehicle. What is
2: uh, uh, the status of of the case? You argued it, right? Tell us about that, how that was, uh, how active the justices were, uh, whether any public policy concerns were raised in addition to the actual law, and also when you expect a decision.
7: Uh, So the justices were active with uh, my opponent, he he was first. he was the appellant. They asked him some very uh, important questions regarding what the public policy of our state should be in situations such as this. Um, I got a few questions uh, involving the same area. We are currently waiting. We do not know exactly when a decision will be written, but we are anxious uh, to get it.
4: So Larry, tell us a little bit more about your law group. Um, You... Take on some really interesting cases. You're a well-known firm in Chicago. You've been named um, one of the most influential law firms in America by Trial Lawyer Magazine. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about your firm and the types of cases that you
8: take on? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, our, our firm. You know, we really focus on uh, four main practice areas: uh, uh, personal injury. Uh, people have been hurt on the job uh, that need uh, workers' compensation claims. Uh, we represent employees in employment disputes uh, and labor disputes, and uh, we also help people obtain their Social Security disability benefits. You know, part of our uh, our makeup is really about helping people. You know, that's our mission. That's our part of our core values here. And it's what's kind of taken us from uh, the very beginning, 15 years ago until today. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with great lawyers like Janelle, who uh, also believe these same things and then take this fight to court. He's, uh, you know, he knows more about the law and these appeals than uh, a lot of lawyers do in this entire state. And, and uh, but he's also got a passion. And, and this is a case that's really about uh, you know, protecting the citizens of Illinois. I mean, it's it's uh, we're not trying to pave a uh, new law here. It's 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 uh, we're trying to stop some uh, particular insurance companies from not following the law. Uh, but ultimately, um, it's it's the fight is just because it's it's for the people of Illinois and it's going to protect them
2: we also want to just quickly remind our listeners and viewers of uh, buckets over bullying this is a uh, great organization that was began by Larry and, and one of your clients who unfortunately was uh had a son that was the victim of some uh, some cyberbullying and as a result uh you started this organization featured on another episode of legal face off a few weeks ago and in recognition of coming off National Bullying Month, uh, we want to, again, direct our viewers and remind them to uh, check out that episode and, more importantly, uh, support uh, buckets over bullying as much as as, as you can.
8: Yeah, thank you for that, Rich. It's very, very important for our youth today, and it's really affecting a lot of people. So it's it's a very important topic. You Which
1: know, wish, wish the family our best, please. And I want to thank our guests, attorneys Janelle Mataj and Larry Disparti of the Disparti Law Group.
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer, with credits including 85, The Greatest Team in Football History, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's legal face-off since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com.
1: And next up, the legal grab bag. Our guests are Christopher Fusco, a founding partner and managing partner of Callahan and Fusco, and Michelle Mittendorf, uh, Senior Risk Manager at Stanley Steamer. First up, Rich with Trump Watch.
2: Our favorite segment, our most consistent segment, okay. maybe. Uh, Trump uh, does not stop providing us with legal co- uh, content. A couple things going on this week. Today, literally, Don Trump Jr. is testifying uh, in the uh, in the uh, case that's already been adjudicated for fraud. Um, it's an interesting dynamic where all three of the Trump kids, Eric, Ivanka and Don Jr. are testifying. Now, it's important to remember that they're testifying generally against the organization. But of course, the organization is Trump. So uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, Tina, for that family discussion as to what's going on. We know that uh, the position of the Trump family is that uh, a bunch of things that uh, there was no fraud, that they were. Uh, only evaluating real estate the way everyone else in New York does so, even though what they conflated the value of uh, of, of one apartment by about 7,000%. So it will be interesting. There's no way that any of them are going to flip like some of the co-defendants in the other cases have flipped, right? We've seen a, a, a rose gallery of flippers last week that we've discussed. I don't think Tina, any of the kids are going to flip. Do you?
4: I don't know, Rich. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's very unlikely But from what I've been seeing, at least in some of the media, there is some speculation that perhaps one of the kids may flip, perhaps Ivanka, because really what the kids would be testifying to at this point is sort of what they knew in terms of the value and some other details with regard to the damages. So um, it would be a really sad day for, for Trump if his kids start flipping on him. Um, But, you know, I think that that's the value that they bring to the table at this point, given where we
2: are in the litigation. Sad day for him. Using a Trump term. Sad day for him. Good day day for justice, perhaps. The second part of Trump Watch this week, everyone, uh, and we'll we'll get with Chris on on this one, is uh, the gag order. Another violation of the gag order. Uh, This is a game of of legal chicken where the two judges now are imposing gag orders on Trump and he continues to violate them. And these are not just uh, threats. Right. The judge now up the ante by increasing the fine. And most of us uh, uh, suspect that the next time he violates it, and we know there'll be a next one, that he'll land in jail. Right. That is a real uh, uh, possibility that we'll see Trump in jail for violating these gag orders. Most observers have concluded, Chris, that anyone else not named Trump who continuously violated these gag orders and in such a public and insulting way going after yep. special counsel Jack Smith would already be in jail. Um, so, Absolutely. Uh, we'll,
9: Absolutely. But you know, the thing that so far, Rich, is that he loves this. He loves it. He'll gladly pay $15,000 or whatever he's paid so far for all the free publicity that he's getting for the, the world against Donald Trump. This is what he wants to portray. So as long as he doesn't go to jail, as long as he keeps himself and his lawyers keep him out of jail, he is glad to pay these fines. And yes, if it was you or me, we'd both be disbarred, but uh, we'd be in a lot more trouble. But I, I think that maybe it's a minority view, but he is happy to pay these fines and he's happy to be held in contempt. Yeah,
2: Michelle, to, to, to Chris's point, we were talking offline that if uh, Trump's brand got a huge boost simply from the world's most famous mugshot, imagine what the purple walk with Trump in handcuffs walking into a Manhattan mm-hmm. cell, cell would generate. What I mean, he would the 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 fundraising would be off the charts.
10: Yes, it would. I mean, part of this it's kind of interesting um, when you look at this. It's it's kind of the balance between is is how. Like he walks just a fine line in what he says that he he knows how to keep himself again from getting handcuffs slapped on him and us having these discussions that they should be. I mean, it is such it's interesting to watch how he worded what he he tweeted out.
2: Yeah, he did. He tweeted tweeted out, but he also has these, you know, hallway uh, sessions every time where he just goes off the rails also.
10: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, um, it's my take on it sometimes is is like you use the term off the rails, but then it's interesting how it's worded just enough that he doesn't get the handcuffs slapped on him.
2: Well, it's an interesting point that you raise, actually. I don't agree necessarily that he's that smart about wording it. Although, you know, <laughs> listen, these people have other people tweeting for him, but I think Trump does it himself. That's but correct. you say that because the order is very specific. It allows Trump, for example, to engage in political uh, uh, criticism of Biden, because not doing so, putting a gag order on him being able to go after Biden would play into the narrative that you're curtailing his First Amendment. So you're right. Uh, it is a fine line. And the judge purposely allowed him a lot of Liberties so as to Correct. not be criticized as curtailing a political candidate's ability to go after his opponent. So I think you're right. I don't I don't agree, though, that he's that smart about how he's. <laughs> he just it's Trump. It's.
10: Trump. I would say oh. it's someone maybe in his camp right. that, yeah, that is very strategically um, choosing these words in such a manner that that's the fine line of him, him being Trump but knowing just how not to get him and himself in even worse trouble. Although I think he probably liked it at this point.
9: (laughs) Just keep in mind, Rich, he's really good about getting a message across politics aside. Um, You know, you can just read it on those hats that they're still wearing.
1: OK, next, Tina, the legal jeopardy answer is who is Ted Nugent?
4: <laughs> well, Ron, so, you know, and with this next story, it's going to be a sad testament to how old we all here are on legal face off. The fact that we know who Ted Nugent is um, and it will be interesting to see how many of our listeners know who Ted Nugent is. Apparently, not many people in the Fourth Circuit know who Ted Nugent is. Um, there was a case. Last week, involving a photographer who sued a conservative news website that published a photo of Ted Nugent without his permission, arguing that its publication of the photo should fall under the fair use exception. Um, What's interesting is that this is a a bit similar to the Annie Warhol um, Supreme Court case that we discussed a few months ago. We have the uh, conservative news website saying that they didn't need permission to publish this uh, photo of Ted Nugent because it was a fair use on the grounds that they were using the photo in a transformative way to relay a political message. Apparently, the website used the photo in 2016 in connection with an article that they ran called 15 Signs Your Daddy Was a Conservative. So this case was up for appeal to the Fourth Circuit. Um, A Virginia federal judge had ruled that the website had transformed the photograph and that it was a fair use. Um, The case was set to be argued last year. The case, they, they waited until the U.S. Supreme Court case involving the Andy Warhol Foundation was decided because they thought it was pretty relevant to the analysis, which me as an IP attorney can totally understand that. Um, but you know the the case was argued the way you would imagine. You've got the plaintiff arguing it was unauthorized, you've got the website as defendant arguing it was a fair use. But what was really interesting with this case was the discussion that the judges had about who Ted Nugent is. Um, there was some pretty funny dialogue. Um, where you have the judges asking um, the parties whether the picture was used to show what Ted Nugent looks like. Um, another one of the justice, the uh, the judges had asked if he was a country music singer. Um, is that what he is? Um, and the responses to that were were pretty funny. And actually, one of the judges responded and said, "He's a rock singer." I guess I'm too old to know, not really realizing that Ted Nugent was at the height of his fame over forty. Um, so in any event, an interesting um, way to pay homage to Mr. Cat Scratch fever.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a sad day when the world doesn't recognize the musical majesty of, uh, of Ted Nugent. But, you know, speaking of, of right wing politics, Ted Nugent has gone. Uh, actually, he's been kind of silent over the years. But for a while, he was the leader of the musical uh, end of the right wing movements. Uh, very conservative, uh, big Supporter of the Second Amendment, famously uh, lived off the land for many years, right? Uh, off the grid. Was off the grid, Chris, before off the grid was cool, but, um, yeah, surprised at the lack of uh, familiarity with this judge. And it's not like he was a young judge. What was he, 85? It's like 84. 84. I mean, that's the era that he should be rocking out to the motorcycle. Get ready for
9: a mess. Get ready for a mess. I thought it was coming down. If the judge doesn't understand it and doesn't know who the uh, the subject is, get ready for a mess.
2: Michelle, you're a big Nugent fan. I know, <laughs> big fan.
7: No,
10: I think it was? I did think it was interesting that the judge was like 84 or 83 and had no clue who Ted Nugent was. Who's? I think Ted's what 74, 75. Yeah. I mean, we're not yeah. talking about it. We're not talking about a newer artist or someone that far from their John. You know, from their age. Group. It was. I mean, Cat
4: Scratch Fever came out late seventies. I mean, it's approaching its like fiftieth anniversary at this point.
9: Where's the love? <laughs> Roll
10: ten.
1: All right. Well, rich Oscar-winning actor Robert De Niro turned into a kind of a raging bull on the witness stand in his defamation
2: trial. Yeah, you know, a little, eh, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. The drinks are on the house. Uh, yeah, De Niro's, uh, speaking of New York, there's always the great trials are going on in, in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, his uh, former employee, Graham Chase Robinson, has sued him alleging that uh, he mistreated her, that he abused her over the course of many years while working as uh, his assistant. She claimed that he made her, Tina, uh, she, her, her, his office wife subjected her to everything from, uh, requiring her to scratch his back to, uh, late night phone calls to, uh, other alleged abuses. My favorite part of the story is that, uh, he yelled across the packed courtroom. He said, uh, shame on you, Chase Robinson. Shame on you. <laughs> Just imagine as the number as the world's number one Bobby D fan. That's what you want from De Niro, right? You want him sitting in court. You want him just just ready, like like you know, just just going out. Who do you think you are? Shame on you! Shame on you! Uh, but you know, interestingly, he he admits that he asked her to scratch his back. Speaking of cat scratch fever, this is back scratch fever, I would say, because Bobby D, uh, Jimmy Conway himself admitted that he asked her to scratch his back. But he said, only on two occasions, Tina, and because it was really hard to reach, which begs the question, like, (laughs) isn't that the definition of asking someone to scratch your back? You know, when (laughs) you're asking someone to scratch your belly, that's like per se. (laughs) But, you know, that's when you really need someone. I understand. He also said that uh, he did ask her, he called her one time after 11, I believe. But that was, again, only happens, you know, celebrities, they're just like us. He called her at 11 p.m. to ask for a martini from Nobu. I don't know about you, but who hasn't? I'm not calling Nobu that often for a martini. So maybe there is something to these allegations. Uh um, we'll scratch, but- we'll scratch over there. Let's <laughs> scratch over there.
9: Over there, a little bit, little bit, a little bit further, over there.
2: Go on. Go
9: if on. you admit that you scratch, you might want to think about settling the case.
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. Once you admit to the scratch, it's a bitching. Very- It's an old school legal theory goes by this. Yeah. Admit to the scratch, pay the scratch. Hey, be done with it.
4: Yeah, I mean, I love Bobby D. Don't get me wrong. He's definitely one of my favorite actors of all time. And I think some of these allegations, I mean, Rich, we've talked about cases like this over the years where it's just some of the things that are being alleged are really not all that far afield from what these types of folks who are paid handsomely. Now, granted, they work really hard, I'm sure, but, you know, these folks are being paid handsomely to help these stars do things that in the ordinary course they just can't do because of their schedules. I agree. The back scratching is a bit, you know, over the top, shall we say. Um, but some of these allegations, Rich, you know, not to come too much to Bobby D's defense, but some of these allegations seem like they're really just, you know, like, OK, well, you shouldn't be working this job if you have a problem doing some of these
7: things.
2: Yeah, Michelle. I am watching you. What are your thoughts on this? And don't give me the wrong answer because I will take you down to Chinatown. <laughs>
10: well, it, I assume um, it's it's kind of interesting because obviously I have a I have a quasi-work husband and have been referred to as, you know, quasi-work wife. And so, like, for me, I kind of, on this, I thought a lot of the allegations when I looked at it I thought it was hilarious. Um, I think when you work, I think too, looking how long um, she worked for him and how long you work with someone and you have a relationship, like there are just times and things that people, just in general, you become friends. I, I actually thought it was, some of the things were hilarious. Even ordering the drink from Nobu, like you're a personal assistant. Is right. it in that kind of, in the job description.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, you're working for Bobby D. How many? I think in the contract you got to understand that at some point he's going to scream at you.
10: You will yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, look, my work husband carries my bags on a, on work trips. I mean, you know.
2: Right. Yeah. Anytime you get a work husband, I think there's some some issues there. But uh, yeah, Ron, you know, uh, it's a, it's a sin. You know, it's a, it's a it's a hoof. You know, we got to we got to borrow this knife. <laughs> it's, it's delicious.
10: Did you, Did you think I'd have a different view, Rich?
2: No, I didn't think so. But uh, you know, I learned how to I learned how to uh, pour ketchup from that scene in Goodfellas. You you, go, you do the, the <laughs> rotation method. Delicious, delicious. A little bit, a little bit. All right. You talking to me?
1: There you go. Are you talking to me? Uh, Tina, we know employers are careful about who they hire, but apparently it also includes who you fire these days.
4: Yeah, Ron. So a couple of weeks ago, a fired associate from the law firm Wilmer Cutler filed a pro se lawsuit against the firm. And as Rich and I know, it's these pro se lawsuits that end up often becoming the most entertaining. Um, But it was a pro se lawsuit filed by a fired associate Um, Against the firm itself, one of its attorneys, and a John Doe making a number of allegations, including discrimination based on his Cameroonian origin, as well as defamation through evaluations he received, intentional infliction of emotional distress as a result of the evaluations and interactions with a firm attorney, as well as allegations of retaliation, tortious interference with contract and fraudulent misrepresentation. I think that's officially the kitchen sink uh, version of this complaint. But in any event, Jean Dassey is the attorney who brought the lawsuit. He claims that um, the allegations arose from a couple of things that happened to him while he was at Wilmer Hale, including an incident involving a senior attorney who was named on the complaint and um, revisions to PowerPoint slides as they were getting ready for trial. Apparently revisions to the slides that were requested uh, for Dassey to make didn't make their way into the slides. And Dassey claims that he was publicly chastised um, by that attorney in front of others. Um, He claims that when he said too bad, so sad to that attorney to try to creatively de-escalate the situation, um, that he was surprised that it didn't and that he ended up con- continuing to be in an altercation with his attorney. Personally, Rich, I'm not really sure why he thinks saying too bad, so sad to a senior lawyer would deescalate a situation like this. But in any event, turning to his evaluations, apparently he was told a year ago that he was a, substantively a good lawyer and needed to work on his soft skills. But he claims that in his mid-year evaluation this year, that the firm pivoted and not only criticized his substantive work or they actually started to criticize his substantive work in addition to his soft skills and that they used it as a basis to terminate him. There are a couple of other allegations relating to some other attorneys, including a now retired partner who um, apparently made some claims about his inability to redline documents and so forth. Um, and also saying that um, his line of questioning for preparing a witness was stupid. Rich, you know, at the end of the day, whatever happened to employment at will?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, been sacrificed to the, uh, I don't want to overuse the term, but woe culture, right? I mean, these days uh, you can't, it seems like, speak to anyone without the threat of an employment discrimination lawsuit of some kind. Uh, I know that, you know, you and I have talked extensively about this issue on the show and off the air. And uh, I know uh Chris has the same issues. Now, I'm not saying there are not, no merits to this allegation, to this complaint. I have no idea. We weren't there. You know, the courts will sort that out. But I do know that uh, it seems more than ever that any criticism is taken um, very seriously and uh, sometimes overreacted to by uh, people junior to you. And I think that, especially in the world that we live in, and, you know, we're dealing with two friends of mine on this, uh, on this podcast, one who's a fellow attorney, but one who's a client. And, uh, Michelle and I have known each other for, for what 15 years or more. Yeah. And, uh, I know, you know, she thinks of these issues in the same way I do, but, you know, we have clients to report to as does, you know, Chris, as do you, Tina. Yeah. Uh, when we are working, we take it very seriously. And unfortunately, not all of the people with whom we work. And again, particularly those who are more junior to us feel the same compulsion for excellence that we do. And that results sometimes in some criticism. Believe it or not, sometimes you have to criticize someone for their work. And I was raised with the idea that as soon as my boss criticized me, I'm running to the courthouse to file a lawsuit. But that is every day these days. Chris, I know you've got strong. We haven't talked about this case, but I know you've probably got some strong feelings about it. You know, when I was reading the background on this uh, case,
9: Rich, I was thinking, who amongst us does not work for the lunatic? Someone's as as you're a young lawyer, you always work for the screamer, the yeller, the name caller, um, and that's when I was young. Per that was like.
8: All of the, go ahead. The
9: one. I, 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 go ahead. This is how you make your bones. This is this is how you how you sometimes you learn your craft and you work for a lunatic and maybe at worst you work for a lunatic. But if an associate on a trial case said to me, "So you know, too bad, so sad." We wouldn't be working together anymore.
2: Well said. Michelle, you don't suffer crybabies um, uh, too easily. Uh, you deal with a lot of lawyers. You employ a ton of lawyers all across the country. What's your take on this?
10: Yeah, it's it's interesting that we've become, you know, I think I'm of the cloth that that criticism and continued growth is where it gets you where you are. And so, look, at the end of the day, um, i expect i expect certain things and certain quality and certain standards from legal counsel from our our claims administrator etc like and and that's how they interact with everyone else how they communicate and uh, you know regardless of what folks say you know there's a certain expectation and if you don't meet it you're going to get criticized mm-hmm. i mean that's just that's just The reality. And, and again, there's a balance on it because again, in today's world, uh, you know, obviously I'm of an age that I grew up. Um, actually that criticism doesn't, you know, kind of scare me or worry me. It's the things that drive me to continually improve. Um, you got to be aware of how you communicate those now in today's world where, um, you know, a lot of folks get a participation
4: trophy. <laughs> and Michelle, I completely agree with you that, you know, there seem to be, it's all nuanced, right? In terms of how to approach situations, you always have to have the right level of decorum and no matter what you're doing, particularly professionally, right? But, you know, it just seems like there are certain indicators here, like the too bad, so sad comment and the fact that, you know, and it's just something and not particular to this person, but just you know, this our profession and other professions, folks now more than ever, are asking for constructive criticism and mentoring, et cetera. But you have to be willing to hear the good and the bad. As you mentioned, the participation trophy that is sort of the context and environment in which some of our more um junior attorneys are coming up through the ranks and are professionals and just you know, folks, if you want the criticism, just be mindful that you need to take the cues, both the direct um, feedback you get, as well as the feedback that you get on a day-to-day basis when you're handling matters about where what you're doing well and what you're not doing well, and be, be willing to take the constructive criticism along with the praise.
9: Well said. It's a practice. It's a practice. They have to learn that it's a practice, and you have your ups and your downs, and sometimes you have a bad day and you make a mistake. It's practice.
1: And Tina, there's a scary story about a bad night at an Airbnb in Michigan that is just batty.
4: So, Ron, a group of seven senior women have filed a lawsuit against Airbnb and the owners of a northern Michigan home where they say they were subjected to um, dozens of bats. Um, these women were staying at a home that is known as the Castle, celebrating their 50th high school reunion in late July. And a few days into their stay, apparently bats started coming down from the attic in this home and flying by them, biting and attacking them. Apparently, the bats were coming down the walls and entering through gaps in the baseboards. Um, The women claimed that they were so scared um, that they felt like they were trapped all night and they stayed under the covers until the morning when the bats with the daylight went back to the attic. An exterminator later confirmed that it was a large colony of Michigan brown bats that was living in the attic, and there there were indications that the bats had been there for quite a while. So the lawsuit that's been filed against both the owners of the home as well as Airbnb claims that they negligently allowed the bat-infested home to be advertised through the Airbnb platform and that the homeowners... Um, who had responsibility um, for maintaining the property. It was their responsibility to make sure that the home was safe when renting it out. Um, Airbnb is pretty sophisticated. They've crossed this bridge before. Um, They have sophisticated agreements with property owners with whom they do business, and they offer insurance to those property owners and spelt pretty clearly what is and is not covered by that insurance. And some of these agreements, Rich, are dozens of pages long. Um, so we're dealing with an, a very sophisticated co- company here. But at the same time, Airbnb has been under a lot of fire these days between hotels becoming more cost competitive and the changing landscape and costs associated with vacation homes um, that are were contemplated for rental through Airbnb and just having more supply than demand.
2: Yeah, Tina, I, I've stayed at some Airbnbs where if the only problem was bats biting me, then I'd feel I'd still give it uh, a couple of stars. I've stayed at some really bad Airbnbs over the years, so I I feel some sympathy for this lawsuit. I get it. Um, I, I, I love the fact they say that the whole ordeal ended uh, with sunlight. Um, yeah, cause they're bats. That's what bats do. <laughs> they stop attacking at sunlight. Um, and also, uh, Chris, uh, the lawsuit alleges that in addition to the bat attack, mm-hmm. that, um, there was a, a bat urine running down the, uh, the walls of the. so uh,
9: good. It's
2: so good. It just begs the question though. How did the plaintiffs tell it was urine? Was there like a, I don't know. Ace test involved. Uh, I don't know how to <laughs> determine that it was urine, but I I hate to be the uh, the junior clerk at the law firm who has to determine what that.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, not, um, I guess if, that, a a, if I was Airbnb and the owner, I'd, I'd make it right, give him a refund, and and uh, a nice place in Hawaii or something like that to, uh, to to deal with this. But I guess there's ways to find out what the substance was. But uh, I'm sure Airbnb is going to take the position that they're a technology company and this is on the owner. So. Um, those are the way these usually
2: will go. Yeah, just contact the owner, Bruce Wayne. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe, you never know. If it was a spider, you become Spider-Man
9: or Spider-Person.
1: Tina, Britney Spears had a number one excuse for bad driving recently.
4: Yeah, Ron. So Britney Spears has been pulled over quite a bit lately um, outside of Thousand Oaks, which is where... She um, she lives Um, over the past couple of months. She's been pulled over at least two or three times. Um, The latest was a couple of weeks ago where she explained that the reason why she crossed the double yellow traffic lines was because she had to go to the bathroom and she had to go pretty bad. Um, What's really interesting is I don't know if our guests and if Rich, you had an opportunity to watch the body cam footage from the California Highway Patrol officer that pulled her over. Um, Apparently, it was the same officer who pulled her over both on September 10th and October 6th. Um, You know, I guess if we're going to give props to Brittany for anything, we should give her props for at least being super apologetic and polite. Um, Not so much on the excuses that she was giving. Um, She had said that the reason why she didn't have... Her license registration and proof of insurance was because her security um, still had all of those things in her possession their possession because she was on vacation and they were worried about those getting stolen and somebody potentially impersonating her or wanting to steal them to have them as mementos. Um, the first time she was pulled over in September, she was going 61 in a 40 mile per hour zone. Um, didn't have any of her license, registration, or proof of insurance there either. In the grand scheme of things, Rich, she's not paying all that much money to get herself out of these things. Maybe a few hundred dollars here, a thousand dollars there. But I think we as a collective should get together and come up with some better excuses for her.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you're a member, everyone, but uh, there was another famous person uh, pulled over uh, in California not too long ago. Uh, His name was Rodney King. You know who wasn't allowed out of the pullover and allowed to leave? Uh, Rodney King. So, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's an example of sort of rich white privilege, to be honest, of Britney Spears over and over again, violating the law by her own mission. She, in the body cam video that you mentioned, she, you know, in her little baby voice, says, oh, I got to go pee. And she blocks the sunlight from the trooper. And the trooper couldn't be nicer to her. Let's let's assume that this was not Britney Spears, but a you know, young African-American motorists in California. Guarantee you they wouldn't be afforded the same uh, privileges as Britney Spears. So that's one take. And and number two, Chris, is, um, you know, uh, it's not the most famous body cam video we've seen lately uh, of Britney Spears. She is constantly posting TikTok videos of herself. The most la- the latest one, one that inspired lots of Halloween costumes that I saw, was this video of her dancing with knives, right? Doing these crazy belly dance with knives. Like, like, by all means, let's let crazy Britney Spears, who's already been subject to multiple uh, involuntary um, you know, uh, uh, protection orders, let's let her dance around with knives. Uh, and let's let her continue to be on her merry way. Let's not think about, maybe she needs a little more help, but yeah.
9: You know, your point is really well taken, Rich, because justice needs to be blind. And I, I've dealt with this with, with celebrities or, or athletes. It, it should be the same. It should be the same. And you know, I don't know whether they can give her like court order depends or something like that, so she just drive around wearing those, so we don't have to go with this anymore. But whatever penalty you and I or any other person would get, that's what she should be have gotten, and not, um, you know, you know, not some more free publicity on TMZ or whatever this is. But um, the whole thing is ridiculous.
2: I mean, in defense of CHP Michelle, they did give her, I think, two tickets. They let her off for one. There was some question about whether she was on a private drive or not. But man, enough enough of Brittany
10: yeah I mean listen she should she should be held I know there's been this new groundswell of support for Brittany with the the release of the new book and memoir but again you know how do you you, you get pulled over once you, you know come on you get pulled over twice for the same thing like she needs to kind of be pretty accountable for what she's doing but again it's Brittany baby <laughs>
1: And Rich, we uh, wrap up with the idea that all lawsuits can be scary if you're on the receiving end, but some are more scary than others.
2: That's our annual roundup of uh, scary Halloween lawsuits. We, we've we done this now for we've been on the air now for what nine years. I think we've done one every uh, every Halloween. Uh, not to be confused with the always popular Christmas lawsuit edition of Legal Face Up <laughs> coming up soon. Uh, but, yeah, Tina, we've covered lots of. Uh, Let's see. We've covered uh, people getting burned from Halloween decorations. We've covered people, the, the always popular uh, you jump out at me. And I, I see you in a haunted house similar to a couple of today, but this year we saw a couple of interesting ones. So there was a a fight over what else? Our lead story today, Trump, Trump always engenders some, uh, some discussion and some fighting. Uh, someone dressed up as Trump at a Christmas party and uh one of the combatants in this fight assumed that the person dressed as Trump was a Trump uh, critic, and that resulted in a uh, a fight, a bar fight that resulted in a lawsuit alleging intentional infliction of emotional distress. The court said, uh, yeah, go away. It's a freaking costume. <laughs> it's it's uh, a bar fight. Yeah, it's a bar fight. It's a bar fight. Was this in Jersey? Food. This had to be in Jersey, Chris. I got to look. Connecticut. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. Old Lyme, Connecticut, Jersey adjacent. Uh, There was another lawsuit, Tina, involving uh, uh, Six Flags. Again, this is the always popular lawsuit where you go to a place that's scary and then sue the place for scaring you, right? (laughs) This this wizard uh, visited uh, Six Flags St. Louis in June of 23, Um, or actually the decision was in June of 23. They visit around Halloween for Fright Fest and uh a a scary clown jumped in their their vehicle and uh this person got scared and allegedly tripped and fell and uh again sometimes courts do the right thing right tina the courts <laughs> hey it's called fast, dummy that's pretty much the long and short of the legal analysis involved there I agree, Rich.
4: I mean, we've seen some really awesome cases like this, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or Halloween. But especially it seems like Halloween is ripe with opportunities for these sorts of things, especially when we're talking about things like costumes that are flammable. Um, People, you know, there was that one case involving the person who used cotton balls um to put on their like to use it as a body for their costume. And then we're surprised when the cotton balls were flammable. I mean, it's just it seems like Halloween, while it brings out a lot of fun stuff, it also brings out the stupidity in people. And so that's why I look forward to this segment every year when we do it on Legal Face Off.
2: Yeah. And, and Chris and Michelle, I mean, the, the, the serious legal theory that these courts are implying that we on the defense side of these kind of cases deal with every day, and thankfully, these courts got it right is is what it's 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 contributory fault it's waivers it's personal responsibility it's all the things that you know we argue all the time and in fact they were applied here so when you go to a haunted house the concept is you're aware of what you're getting yourself into be on the lookout be on, you know understand that you're responsible for your own surroundings and while there should not be negligence subjecting you to injuries you're going to get scared right um and you know frequently Another legal theory is you sign a waiver prior to entering these facilities, haunted houses or amusement parks. Now, a whole separate discussion could be had. We actually had it earlier with our attorney who's suing the gun manufacturers as to whether those waivers are enforceable. In many states, surprisingly, they are not enforceable. But, you know, take responsibility. When you go to a haunted house, have fun. If you get scared, that's on you. It's good to see this do not defense still
9: applies. If you go to a fright fest and you get scared, that's on you.
2: Absolutely, Michelle, we'll end off the segment with you telling us before we go to our roundtable question, uh, what's your favorite Halloween costume of all time?
10: Oh, favorite Halloween costumes. you know, i'm I'm gonna throw it back to being kind of nostalgic, and I can't believe this. I kind of miss the days of our uh, of our kind of plastic wrap kind of body. Uh, yeah, the, the kind of costume. And then our mask, where you could barely talk and you could barely see out of. Um, I've got to just like, I think that's like the best all time was I went as like a gremlin or something. Frankenstein, that's, awesome.
2: that, that's that little elastic that break automatically. Yeah. They have, you have to MacGyver the thing to staple it and, and all that. But uh, that's a good one. Let's go around the horn and ask since we talked about my favorite actor of all time, Bobby D. We'll get to know all of our guests and Ron by asking everyone, what's your favorite Robert De Niro movie of all time? And I say that, and this is just coincidental that I'm wearing one of the suits today. (laughs) uh, A goodfellas quote in here, it says, uh, Bing, what are you doing here? All right, go ahead. Ron, favorite Bobby D movie of all time?
1: Well, uh, there's about four or five, but I would think the first I would always go back to, Raging Bull. Great performance, great movie, great story. Jake LaMotta, The Raging Bull.
2: Though I'm no Olivier, I would much rather say, if he fought Sugar Ray, the world, the world, a horse, a horse. Yeah, that's a great that's a great one. Uh, uh, Chris, favorite Bobby D movie?
9: Oh, it's Goodfellas, by a little bit, by a little bit.
2: A little bit. The drinks okay. are on the house.
9: You the shelter shop- them a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little
10: bit. Yeah, I'm going to go. My, mine's actually probably Taxi Driver. Mm.
2: No one else. Here. <laughs> no one else here. Tina, you can't repeat it. We know you love Goodfellas, but you can't repeat Goodfellas.
4: Oh, well, good. I always say Godfather. He was amazing.
2: Godfather part two. two. Yes.
4: Part dos. Do it.
2: Absolutely. How about uh, we're going to go with Leslie and Lisa. Uh, Leslie might be too young to enjoy Bobby D, but let's see.
7: Um, I looked them up, and I know the movie Meet the hearts. Fockers. <laughs> Which one? Meet the Fockers. I've seen that one. That has. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh,
2: Lisa, favorite Bobby D movie?
4: The Godfather. It has to go back to the Godfather. I'll say one since Christina said two. he's not in one. Father.
2: Oh, he, oh, yeah, yeah. He wasn't in one.
8: That's not, what I just said. He's not in one, but
2: <laughs> he played a young, of course, Vito Corleone. All right. Well, you get a pass, I guess, because of your age, but you, you all Raging Bull Rod is my, my, one of my top three movies of all time. The other two are De Niro movies, but, um, you know, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say, um, shit. What am I going to say? I was going to go with Goodfellas, but I'm going to go with, um, Probably Heat, you know, Heat is like in my top five. Of course, one of the all-time great scenes, Pacino and De Niro at the diner. Um, and just every piece of dialogue of De Niro in that movie, long movie is incredible. You know, he asks, uh, he goes, uh, what are you fixing to be a penologist? You know, <laughs> you, you see uh you see me uh robbing liquor stores with a born to lose uh, tattoo. I am never going back. So that's that's one of the great ones. Good choices today, great movies. Uh, everyone should go out and, and watch all of those films. All
1: right, good idea. And they are making Heat Two, or are they going to be making cool. very soon? That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Jeffrey Korn, uh, attorneys uh, Janelle Mataj and Larry Desparti, as well as Tad Thomas, uh, Chris Fusco, and uh, Michelle. Thank you also for being on the show on the on the podcast. And our producers, Lisa Stiegel and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like subscribe, and to share the Legal Face-Off podcast. And if you enjoy it, please rate it five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ron Brown, and we'll talk to you in just a few weeks.
0: It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have.
7: WGN Radio. We blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports Hollywood and don't forget...